Hate came calling in a big way this holiday season in our communities, but this hate has a more specific target. There's a rise of anti-Semitism not only in the United States, but from around the world. And it's just, we just need to confront it totally and unequivocally without any conditions. This week on 880 In-Depth, the fear and angst of anti-Semitism. What has happened in Brooklyn, what has happened in Muncie, New York, was an attack on every New Yorker. And every New Yorker has felt the pain. Welcome to 880 In Depth. I'm Tim Scheld with Peter Haskell. Peter, a really disturbing holiday season, wasn't it? We saw what happened in Jersey City yeah. where two people went into a kosher market, and then we saw what happened in Muncie maybe 18 days later with five people stabbed. And in the middle, um, over a dozen, uh, somewhere in the area of like 13, 14 different incidents in the city of New York, and it ranged from violence to just flipping the hat of an Orthodox Jew on the streets of Brooklyn. The injuries weren't as serious, but the attacks were just as disturbing, people being targeted because of their religion. So this week we're digging into this topic. It's um, very important to our community. We just came off a, uh, a large rally that occurred over the weekend. Uh, we had the privilege of sitting with, uh, with David Harris. David Harris, the longtime CEO of the American Jewish Committee, really has been following this kind of thing for 30 years. This is his business. He sees the trends. He understands how history is repeating itself. And he's got some ideas on what we can do. I want to begin with what I heard you say at uh, the the rally in March uh, this weekend uh, in Cadman Plaza, where you, the son of Holocaust... Uh, survivors uh, said your parents would be uh, spinning in their graves if they knew why we were at this location on this day for this purpose. And you said the demons are... The demons are back. Uh, For context, um, my parents came here uh, and they believed in America from day one. America was their answer to the demons of Europe the demons not only of World War II, but the demons that went back centuries. For them, America was going to be something different, and in fact, it was, for all of America's imperfections. I remember, for example, when when my parents first drove to Florida in 1959, how shocked they were when they crossed the Mason-Dixon line to discover that here there was legal discrimination still. But America was always a work in progress. They never expected to see anti-Semitism come back in the United States. And that's why I said at this rally, which brought together 25,000 people or more at very short notice, um, my parents would be spinning in their graves to know that we are gathering here because of anti-Semitism, not in the Soviet Union, uh, not in Syria, not in Ethiopia, not even in Europe, but here in the United States and especially in New York. The demons are back. You... um helped co-author an op-ed with Congresswoman Nita Lowy a couple of weeks ago. I guess it was right after the Muncie uh, stabbing attack. Right. Uh, and you, you at, one of the questions you asked immediately in that is, why now? Well, so I pose that to you. <laughs> why now? Uh, frankly, it's easier to ask the question than to answer it. Right. But the question has to be asked, and uh, we've been racking our brains and talking to all kinds of people. In fact, just yesterday... We were in Brooklyn talking to the Hasidic community and trying to get from their perspective, from the ground up, why now? Why do they think 
Uh, we were earlier in, in, in um, Crown Heights. Uh, we've been in Rockland County. All of these places have been sources of tension. Why now? There is no one answer that people are giving. People are still trying to understand themselves. They're reeling from this. They didn't see it coming. You know, we can speculate. There are several answers, perhaps. One of them is um, is social media. I mean, it's clear that anyone today who wants to access information, including conspiracy theories, tropes, you name it, it's all there. Social media was not intended to become a cesspool. In so many ways, it, it, it's, it's, it's enhanced our lives, but it's also a cesspool. And when you think about the fellow up in, in, in Muncie who stabbed the five people in the rabbi's home, the report suggests that he was going to Google to look up Hitler and why Hitler hated the Jews and where the synagogues were. So social media has become this kind of all-purpose vehicle, both for uh, self-incitement and potentially for action. A second is the copycat phenomenon. I mean, once people do it and appear to get away with it, uh, especially if people think of themselves as thrill seekers, I put that in quotation marks, uh, obviously, wow, we can get away with it. You know, we can do this. We can feel powerful for a moment. We can, we can slug someone else who looks different from us, um, and we'll, we'll get away with it, and most with a slap on the wrist. Uh, thirdly, um, back to my parents, all, all the surveys today show that uh, young Americans know virtually nothing about the Holocaust. And why this is tragic, in my view, is not just because it was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, genocide in history, but because the, the Holocaust didn't begin with Auschwitz. The Holocaust began with words. It began with demonization. It began with dehumanization. I'm not suggesting that today we're revisiting the 1930s, but I am saying that when people don't know where this can lead, uh, they don't think twice. How do we stop moving down that path, number one? And number two, you talk about social media. There is so much discord and distrust that is magnified and amplified in social media. What role does that play in the, in, in the human aspect, not on social media, when you've got this constant butting of heads? Look, first of all, let's acknowledge we're living in this incredibly polarized society. Um, rather than coming together as a nation, we seem to be coming apart. We've been through this before. I remember the late 60s, early 70s, around the Vietnam War, around the Nixon presidency, around Watergate. But from that point forward, we, we, we came together largely as a nation. Now, once again, we're, 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 we're breaking apart. Uh, we don't talk to each other, we yell at each other, we scream at each other, often through the anonymity of social media. Secondly, social media itself, I think, has a greater responsibility to police itself. I mean, just because freedom of speech is, is an enshrined element of the American uh, Constitution doesn't mean that every social media company has to give everyone, everywhere, a platform to say whatever they wish. When we submitted that op-ed to the New York Times that you mentioned, the New York Times was not obligated to publish it simply because we submitted it. They screened it for whatever, for whatever criteria. They chose to publish it or not. In this case, they did. Same thing with social media. There has to be some screening here for, for, for what's responsible uh, and what's incendiary. Uh, and thirdly, I think uh, we've got to go back to the schools. 
And we're talking not just about history, we're talking about civility. We're talking about a lot of values. I mean, we live in a pluralistic society. That's a fact. We're becoming more pluralistic by the day. The communities that make up America today are, must learn to live with each other. And I don't just mean tolerate each other. I think tolerance is, is, is too low a bar. They have to learn to understand and respect each other. And one of the things that we took away from our visit to Brooklyn uh, this week was if Hasidic Jews could spend more time in the public schools, for example, meeting with children in the middle schools uh, and the high schools to explain who they are, uh, why they dress the way they do, why they believe the way they do, why they foster community the way they do. And on the other hand, um, have a, the reverse conversation. What's on the minds of young African-Americans, young Latinos, and others in the neighborhood? We're not having those conversations. And then finally, of course, uh, we believe we've got to have more serious prosecution. Uh, if there's going to be a revolving door approach to this, a slap-on-the-wrist approach to this that says you can get away with mugging, attacking people because of their race or religion, you can do this and get away with it, then you're going to have the copycat phenomenon, as I mentioned. Are, are there communities where you see this working, where young people are getting together? Are there programs that work that you can point to that, um, you know, that succeed in getting us to understand each other a little bit more? Sure. I mean— for example, um, a- after what happened in Crown Heights in 1991, where you had the riots, uh, the, 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 the tensions, the conflict between the Hasidic Jews and the African-American community, uh, where you had death as a consequence and you had lots of injuries, there was a concerted effort by, by leaders in both communities locally, locally, not nationally, locally. Locally is where it counts to get together and say, look, we live in the same neighborhood, we share the same streets, we go to the same stores, we need to get to know each other better. Because if we don't, we saw what could happen. We cannot allow that to happen again. So there have been those kinds of efforts. They need to be sustained, they need to be broadened, but without them, communities are gonna live not only in a sense of mutual ignorance, but potentially mutual hostility that can lead, as we've seen against Jews, to attacks based on someone's race or religion. You talk about a set of Jews going into public schools. Is there the risk that one talks past the other? Do you need to have African-American political leaders, church leaders, to go in together to try to facilitate this? I would say that one has to experiment. I would say there's no one surefire answer to the question. Uh, I would say that not every Hasidic leader should be going into public schools and talking to middle school children or high school children. Uh, And not every local African-American leader should be going into the Hasidic schools. But you have to find the right people who know how to talk to children, who also know how to listen, who bring a certain situational awareness, a, a, a certain empathy to the conversation. And once you find them, and once you find the formula alone in partnership, however... Uh, you go forward. Uh, We've got to do this. You mentioned Pittsburgh, which is different than Poway, which was different than Jersey City, which was different than Muncie, which is different than what happens in Brooklyn. Is there a common thread? And if there's not, how does that complicate trying to fix this? 
So we we first saw the the problem of reemerging anti-Semitism in Europe in 2000 2001, and what we said then applies here more recently. Don't weaponize or politicize anti-Semitism by trying to link it to your political ideology, because that's exactly what happened initially in Europe, and what what's happened here as well. It's if I'm on the right. I develop this kind of hermetically sealed uh, explanation for what's going on. It's all about the left that's unleashing anti-Semitism, hatred of Israel, hatred of Zionism, hatred of those Jews who are perceived to be successful uh, in America. And if I'm on the left, I've got this hermetically sealed notion, you know, everything was fine and hunky-dory, and then along came Donald Trump, and all of a sudden, anti-Semitism was unleashed, and Jews are being attacked on the streets. So we've got to deal with Donald Trump, and then we solve the problem. And what we've said at the American Jewish Committee, first in Europe and then here, is if you're serious about dealing with anti-Semitism and not simply scoring political points, then recognize that anti-Semitism is coming from multiple sources. Yes, it's coming from white nationalists. And Charlottesville and Pittsburgh and Poway prove it's coming from white nationalists who, for whatever reason, feel more emboldened today than they did a few years ago. And Jersey City and Muncie and Brooklyn and Manhattan prove that it's not only coming from white supremacists, because if white supremacists have been attacking Jews uh, on the streets of Williamsburg or Crown Heights, no one has yet picked up on that. And then when you move to the campuses, the university campuses especially, where some Jews are feeling cornered and intimidated and bullied for being Jews or for being supporters of Israel, that too is not coming from white supremacists. So if people are serious about this issue, as we are at the American Jewish Committee, the first thing to acknowledge is the problem is real, and the second thing to acknowledge, it comes from multiple sources which require multiple responses. You know, one thing I want to ask you about this week, the NYPD said it would include hate crimes as part of its Comstat to keep a closer eye on this. And politicians and uh, law enforcement have a different idea about domestic terrorism. What is the significance of adding hate crimes to Comstat? And why is it important to get a domestic terrorism label? One of the one of the things that really hit home in our conversations in Brooklyn and elsewhere in recent days was, for example, concern about um, the bail reform issue and the fact that whatever the, the good intentions of the bail reform, that a number of people who have been involved in attacks and assaults against Jews under the bail reform provisions would be right back out on the streets. And in fact, we've seen that in a couple of cases where repeat offenders attacking Jews um, have been identified. We've also seen, as Governor Cuomo said, that there needs to be some new category um, in the legal framework. He called it domestic terrorism, and he said he's going to introduce legislation in that regard. What we think was important as well was when the federal government came into the Muncie case, where, where, where the attacker with a machete wounded five people, one, it seems, with with permanent injury um, and said we are leveling federal hate crimes charges under the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. Again, the message has to be we take this seriously. The charges will be 
um, high level. The consequences could be um, uh, many years in prison. And anyone who still thinks that there's a revolving door approach or we're kind of, we're not really paying attention to this or taking it seriously is starting to get a new message. And maybe this will help serve as the deterrent. David, any last thoughts? Um, appreciate your passion and your uh, expertise and your personal point of view. Uh, we were happy to have you come in here. Thank you. My last thought is really this. Uh, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem that is to be solved by Jews alone. Obviously, we have a stake in the outcome. We're Jews. I'm a Jew. My children and grandchildren are Jews. Anti-Semitism is a problem that threatens core American values. If anti-Semitism is not stopped in its tracks, history has shown it will metastasize. And ultimately, its target will be the fabric and fiber of America, of American pluralism. Every American has a stake in the fight against anti-Semitism, just as every American has a stake in the fight against racism. For those who are interested, it's AJC.org is our website. We'd love to have you join the fight with us. And I remember you ended the remarks on Sunday with a quote from Martin Luther King about, you know, I, I couldn't loosely quote it off the top of my head. Maybe you can. We either learn to live together as brothers or we perish together as fools. So Peter, as we heard David Harris talk about copycats, you actually sat down with someone with another perspective, an interesting perspective this week. Mitch Silber spent a lot of time with the NYPD. He was the director of intelligence analysis. Now he is running a community security initiative. This was put together by Jewish organizations to better help them provide security for smaller institutions, for larger institutions, to really share the knowledge and the understanding of what they can do to protect themselves. Is it something where violence begets violence or anti-Semitism breeds anti-Semitism? Is there a copycat effect? I think there is. I think as I've looked at extremism writ large, certainly when you talk about right-wing extremism, there's almost a competition to outdo the next guy. If you look at Brandon Tarrant, the attacker at the mosques in New Zealand, people wanted to outdo him, whether they were in El Paso, whether they were in Pittsburgh. And there is this copycat phenomena where people feel somehow or another it's an accomplishment to outdo someone who's committed a similar attack. So that may be at play here at a local sort of granular neighborhood level with uh, certainly the juvenile phenomena and possibly the mental health as well. What's an appropriate punishment? Well, I think the punishment and the prevention are sort of uh, intermingled in a sense. Look, uh, you know, as I wrote in this op-ed in the New York Times, I think deterrence and establishing deterrence is the key first step. And the deterrence can be established by a more visible police presence on the streets, um, in patrols, with fixed posts, even doing things like undercover operations where individuals dressed up like uh, observant Jews and surprise those would-be attackers that it's not a vulnerable civilian, it's something else. 
Um, but I think also in the punishment, that can also help reestablish the deterrence. Um, and that part of the punishment I would suggest for juveniles is some type of meaningful community service that, you know, takes time away from other things they'd rather do. And it's probably something they'd rather not do so that that becomes a bit of a deterrence. And then there's education because it can't all be coercion to try and get people to stop. And the mayor has announced some pilot programs in three different areas of the city. We think that should be expanded um, because we're not sure what is fueling this bias, but some anti-bias educational um, work, um, part of the curriculum, we think could only be uh, helpful in this situation. Something tells me that this is a topic that we're going to be talking about more in 2020, sadly. And we heard from David Harris about the social media aspect and component, and that is something that really seems to be snowballing. Um, and you're a parent, I'm a parent. Um, you know, it, you can tend to be optimistic about the, the, the world and the future. You can also be pessimistic about it. You were at the rally, right? You, you, you saw in the faces of young people what I think um, would be optimism. People seem to feel this common connection that everybody's together, everybody's trying to work together. But the people who are there are not the people who need to be reached, and that is a complicating factor. I know I'm going to sound old when I say this, but do you get a sense that social, this social media wave is just going to blow itself up? Meaning that, you know, it's such an important thing to so many people, social media, but it really is such a cancer. And that's the problem. It becomes weaponized in a way that people really who want to either commit evil or poison minds know how to use it, and they are finding better and better ways to do just that. It's just, it's just so sad to live in a world where I'm a Jet fan. If you, I know you're a Jet fan, so I can't use you. Uh, and you, and you, you were a Giant fan. You'd be the enemy. And that, you know, that hate has got to... You know, it's funny you say that, because sometimes I will hear my kids say, unfortunately, they're Jets fans too, and they say, oh, he's a Patriots fan. I hate him. And one thing I will always say, do not use that word. The word I hate is not used in our house. And because it is too easy to take the step from, I hate him because he's a Patriots fan, to I'm going to push him, I'm going to punch him, and who knows what comes next. Excellent. Good way to end, Peter. 880 In-Depth this week. Um, be safe. No hate. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.